Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. On a previous episode, my guest Kim Kaup called herself an accidental entrepreneur. Well, today my guest is referred to herself as an unlikely urban farmer. But as you'll find out, Sonia Lowe, who comes to us here just a few minutes after one of her great presentations at the Wall Street Journal Global Food Forum, and we're coming to you live from the Intercontinental Hotel, by the way, is so much more than that. What she is doing is solving a number of the world's pressing food issues. Sonia is the CEO of Crop One Holdings, one of the world's largest vertical farmers, which Although has been around since Babylonian times, this industry, not the company and not Sonia, um, this industry <laughs> has grown with the rise of LED lighting, sensors, and energy-efficient technology, and is the future of agriculture with a much more efficient and safer food production. Crop One, or, or better known as Freshbach Farms in stores, has been working to create new ways to feed the world to transform the $32 billion global leafy greens market. We'll talk to Sonia all about her company, but let me give you a little bit of her slightly intimidating background, but once you get to know her, you don't even know that. That includes Stanford, an MBA from Harvard Business, former director of global content for Google. I'm just giving you a few highlights. Oh, and did you know Sonia holds professional chef and pastry qualifications, speaks seven languages, and has a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. So if I screw up this interview, I will be hiding out somewhere on a vertical farm that she'll never find. Anyway, I think you get the point. We have someone very special with us today on today's show. Welcome, Sonia, to Financially Speaking. Thank you, Mitch. I'm still laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Good. And by the way, that water was vertically grown, um, apparently, at the Intercontinental Hotel. I was told it was very good, so feel free to enjoy it. So, all right. So we're going to get to farming and how you're saving the planet and all that. But I love a good story and and would love to hear about your childhood. And and what do you think has led you to all of these incredible accomplishments? And and quite frankly, you've just only begun. (laughs) I'm actually a lot older than I look. So, you know, my parents were South Korean diplomats. I grew up all over the world. I've lived in 16 countries. So the languages are really an occupational hazard of having grown up a diplo brat. And, you know, I'm very grateful. I was just speaking to Sarah, indeed, the woman who interviewed me from the Wall Street Journal. Right. Both of my parents had been journalists before they became diplomats, and both were political scientists. And so dinner at our table was all about being intellectually rigorous and having an opinion and knowing how to express that opinion in a fact-based way that was not offensive. And... I think that that intellectual curiosity, the ability to be rigorous, the ability to defend your opinion with two parents who Mm -hmm. were ferocious about that and siblings was very good training Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Sure. You know, I have been a professional investor for a very long time. 
and happened across this company because a former boss of mine introduced me to it. <laughs> so that's kind of the meandering path right, to yeah. getting here. So you're also a relatively new mom, if I understand? I or, am. Yeah, yes, okay. I left it very late. Okay. And I have a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a one-year-old. Oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. So you're a mom, a farmer, an entrepreneur. So so how did the transition go into the ag tech world? I mean, the you know, from content director at Google to, to investing. <laughs> Personally, the pastry chef thing is, I don't know why you gave that up. I mean, I, I can't think of anything more fun. Might, might not make a great living, but my God, must be delicious to Can I taste tell everything. You? <laughs> <laughs> so being a chef was the hardest work I've ever done in my life because you're up at the crack of dawn. That's you know, true. you're sourcing your ingredients, you're on your feet all day, right. and you really don't get to bed till midnight. Right. And then same cycle again. And right. I cooked six days a week, which I loved. I absolutely loved it. But I did This it, was in London? Yes. Yeah. But I did it for charity, actually. So oh. I donated my fees mm-hmm. and I loved it. And then a very practical friend of mine said, you went to Harvard Business School, get back to work. <laughs> you can't be a charity chef for the rest of your life. So I went back to work. But it's um, something you can always pull out of the bag. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I think my friends and my family are always grateful when I cook stuff. That's for sure. <laughs> and, you know, my kids get home-cooked food. Yes. So. <laughs> of course, of course. So Which let's, makes a big difference. Yeah, let's talk about the desperate need for, for what you're producing in, in a world where... There are a large number of people that want to eat more and more. And how do we learn to, to grow the food with all this shortage of land available? I mean, I, I know you've said your mission is to solve the world's food problem one crop at a time. So if you look at the analysis, we anticipate a 70%, 70 calorie deficit between now and the year 2050. We have to grow more food in the next couple of decades than we have ever grown in the history of mankind. Wow. That is a terrifying issue. Now, the sort of upside of that is that there are economists and there are agronomists who believe that we are actually below peak food, which is that Today, we produce enough food to feed the global population. There should not be starvation. The problem is that we distribute it really poorly. So in places like the U.S., 40% of post-consumer food is thrown away. Four Mm. zero. Wow. In places like sub-Saharan Africa, it's a question of getting from field to distribution. So it's pre-consumer, but the wastage there is 20% because there aren't things like refrigeration or cold chains. So in the U.S., we have very little pre-consumer food wastage. We have enormous amounts of post-producer food wastage. Plus, I would imagine, heard this somewhere, I think it was in in one of the UBS reports that I read, how also the processing of food causes so much waste. Causes enormous. Damage. I mean, I, this is this is a little bit off topic, but we did a show on bourbon, and, and I happened to be visiting one of the distilleries down in Kentucky, and I was amazed how much gets thrown away, you know, to make this one little bottle of Buffalo Trace or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you go to a you know fancy restaurant, and they've turned the potatoes. Basically, you've thrown away two-thirds of that potato to create that beautiful little turned potato shape. Right. Right, and that's what you learn at culinary school, is to turn <laughs> potatoes. So... Vertical farming is really about the opportunity to do food production just in time, you know, to use manufacturing parlance. So you're not producing food that you're not going to eat because our cycle time on our food is 28 days. Mm -hmm. So if something's not selling, we yank it from production. Right. 
We know very, very quickly. We had a very clever investor call us the other day, the Zara of agriculture, Mm -hmm. which I totally loved and I'm (laughs) co-opting. That's a great name. Thank you, Sanjeev. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, we are building the Zara of agriculture. Well, and and I I was going to talk about this later, but you mentioned it in your talk earlier and and it pretty much knocked me off my seat when you were talking about what you're growing and we'll get more into details of all the wonderful leafy green stuff and that, you know, you can come back from a trip two or three weeks later and eat it. Explain the main difference between why you're able to do that and everything else at ShopRite has gone bad almost by the time I brought it home. Exactly. So, Sorry field... to pick on ShopRite. I could do Kings. I could do you know, <laughs> Whole Foods. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, 75% of the fresh produce that's coming out in the U.S. is from California. Right. And field-based growing, you basically get two major sources of contamination, bird poop and human poop. And then that goes into the processing cycle. Again, we spoke about how poorly food survives the processing cycle. Well, when we look at, quote, ready-to-eat lettuce, it's been washed, and it's been washed three times, and it's been washed in a salt and chlorine mix. So if you taste our product against a washed, organic, field-grown product, the field-grown product will taste salty because it's covered in salt. Right. Right. So our product basically... No bare human hands ever touch it. And of course, because it's enclosed, there are no birds. Right. There are no insects. Right. We're the only kosher certified vertical farmer in the world, oh. which is kind of incredible. So you can be a Zara and a mensch at the same yeah. time. Look at that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, well, some enterprising rabbis saw yes. us on TV and they called us up and they were like, we think you're kosher. And we were like, come on by. So, you know, we're, very um, true. we're KVH and we're OU. Mm-hmm. And we love it. And, that's and huge, we love serving those <laughs> right. the community. And it just means that our product is super clean. And that is why it lasts so long in the fridge, because we our product leaves our farm with one six hundredth the bacteria of field grown washed product. And I believe you said that by the time it leaves your farm, and we'll just talk about Massachusetts for now, we'll get into Dubai in a minute, it's pretty much on your plate in a couple days. Within 24 hours, it's on supermarket shelves. Right. And what's the average time that other lettuce, so to speak, is on a supermarket shelf? 15 days. Wow. So (laughs) no wonder five days later, it's not looking so good. Yeah. It's not looking so good at 15 days half the time, too. Wow. So recently, I was at a sustainable investing forum. Actually, I met Sonia at, at UBS, and my partner and I were blown away watching this, the videos, which are all on her website, and we'll link to that. I think at the time in the facility in Massachusetts, you might have some in Dubai right now, where they have 130,000 square feet in the desert. Now, you mentioned earlier that it's even more because it's three floors. Correct. So... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Emirates thing? Because that's just, you know, we'll get back to the the Massachusetts thing because while we're talking about it. So Emirates Airlines has a flight catering operator called Emirates Flight Catering, and they are the world's largest flight catering operator. They serve 166 airlines out of Dubai Airport, and they serve 260,000 meals a day. They're big. Yeah. And they knew that the way they were sourcing produce was not viable, Mm -hmm. right? Their leafy greens, small leaf stuff was coming in from Spain or Italy, and it was being flown in. Love the carbon footprint Mm -hmm. of that. (laughs) And then their head lettuce was being shipped in from California, arriving six to eight weeks later. 
So their wastage, so the average supermarket in the U.S. has a loss ratio of about 22%. So if you're a retailer, you're basically paying 22 cents on the dollar to throw stuff away. Wow. Because it's arrived and it's already too yucky to sell. Mm. In Dubai, that number is north of 40. So 40 cents on the dollar, they are throwing away. So Emirates Flight Catering... You know, they're huge mm-hmm. into sustainability. And sure. so they ran a competitive bid process to find a vertical farmer who was going to build the world's largest vertical farm, three tons a day. We won. Wow. And how, how long has that been up and running? So the joint venture was inked in May of 2018. Mm-hmm. And we've just finished the engineering plans. We are expecting to break ground this year. And then we should be up first harvest within eight to nine months. Okay, so don't fly Emirates for about 10 more months if you really want a salad. If not, uh, I don't know, what maybe, you know, I don't think you'll get the kosher meal on Emirates, but that's a separate topic. You do. No, they do Actually, kosher yes, meals. Of course, of course they, they have a kosher they, kitchen. I know they do. I'm kidding. So uh, earlier, people were asking you about organics, and I thought we'd talk about that too, because, you know, it seems most people don't want to label. They want certainty. Some folks think anything organic, so to speak, is superior. And I've heard you use the term beyond organic. What are you referring to, and, and what's your view of the organic revolution? I think the organic revolution is phenomenal. I feed my kids organic food. Anything that I can source organic, I do. The issue with organics is that with population density and land use for agriculture diminishing, and population density, of course, is is increasing, but land use is decreasing, we simply can't feed the world on organic, right? And we have to figure out higher density ways to grow. Vertical farming for certain types of crops is going to be the answer. Right. It has to be, because otherwise we will not fill that calorie gap. And the nutritional value, how does that? Much higher. Much higher. Yeah. So we've just hired Dr. Jenna Bell, who Mm -hmm. is one of our, she's our VP of nutritional science. And she has just started the nutritional analysis of our products. So couple of ways we compare favorably. One is that when you're in a field-grown product, you have nitrogen fertilizer, which is excessive. You know, plants are greedy. They take up as much as they want. Then you have nitrogen runoff, which causes, of course, red tides, algae blooms, etc. Our water, we cycle the nitrogen so perfectly that really the plant gets a tiny dose of nitrogen and our wastewater is potable. So you're getting a low nitrate product with us. Leafy greens are actually the highest source of nitrates in the American diet. So my which wife is tells me every day, scary. where are your leafy greens? Where are so, your yeah, leafy greens? She's, she's read the book. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, people think it's processed meat. Mm-hmm. It's not. So you were talking about water being potable, and it reminded me of your talk a few months ago. And I, I think it was you who said that you were just talking about the quality. Even once you're done with the processing, that water, you, you could just go sell it. I you mean, could just drink it. said it's just amazing to drink. Yeah. You could just bottle it because there's nutritional value in it and there's no it's just super clean it's just water super clean water interesting so i asked listeners about a month ago that knew i was interviewing you for any questions and here was one i thought that was interesting harrison from washington dc asked how long it will be until the farms can be self-sustaining and operate with more robotics and less humans i think what he was looking to find out is how far advanced the AI machine learning is in this vertical farming field? Is this very, very new or is this, you know, coming along quickly? 
It's very new. One of our competitors, Plenty, has built a fully roboticized farm. Apparently, it's a thing of beauty that's huge. We're going into locations, particularly in the United States, where job creation is much needed. And I see us as a bridging industry between environments where tech maybe has left behind. You know, you don't need to be a computer scientist to come work for us. You can be anything. And we will train you in the plant science. We'll train you in the computer science. And then you are on a career track tech job in a really nice work environment. So we see that as socially transformative. We see that as value added. And we think that the ROI on investing in people today is cheaper than robotics and has a greater social impact. I think the robotics, when they get to the point where they are cheap and Mm -hmm. they're off the shelf, we're happy to use them. Right. I mean, the show I did a few weeks ago on the future of food, Michelle LaLiberty from UBS was telling me about the tipsy robot in Las Vegas, which is this uh, bartender who serves 130,000 different types of drinks. But of course, he costs $100,000 to get. So that's great. Maybe you get Tom Cruise from the movie Cocktail instead, a lot cheaper. He's probably only, well, I don't know, maybe he's 20 million. Yeah. But either way, robotics are are still pretty expensive. By the way, if you do hear background noise, if you just joined us, we are live at the Intercontinental Hotel at the Wall Street Journal Global Food Forum. So there are people walking around. So although you call yourself an unlikely urban farmer, you you are getting lots of accolades. You've won a Best Innovation Indoor Farming at the 2019 Global Forum, an Edison Award for Best New Product. And this is really cool. Apparently, you're now a superhero being recognized <laughs> in a children's book about everyday superheroes. I need to tell my, my cousin Judd Winnick, who was on the original San Francisco Real World, if you remember way yeah. back, he was on it and he married his wife, Pam, and it was when Puck was on and, and uh, <laughs> I could go on about that show. But one of the things he does now is write about superheroes for kids, along with his friend Brad Meltzer, who's, who's an author. So this children's book came out about everyday superheroes, women in STEM. So... I don't see the cape, but what's the superpower? I'm sure your kids are going to love this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my daughter's at the stage where she does wear a red cape around and goes, Super William! (laughs) Uh, That's great. You're a great role model. (laughs) (laughs) I think the superpower here is that we are growing enormous amounts of food in tiny plots of land, and we're using tiny, tiny droplets of water. And, you know, we fully intend to get to a nutritionally complete meal, plant-based, of course, but where we can feed the world. You quoted some statistics upstairs about water. I'd love if you'd quote them again. I was just incredible how much water, you know, a typical farm uses versus what you're using. So in Leafy Greens, we use 18,000 gallons of water a year to grow in one of our grow units. To grow the equivalent amount in the field in California, you would need 46 million gallons of water. Wow, that's just mind-blowing. I yeah. mean, that's just, that's just <laughs> staggering, staggering. And you're producing roughly 32 harvests a year, something yes. like that, indoors. And the average farm typically has one, right? Two. <laughs> Maybe two? Maybe. <laughs> it's just incredibly staggering. Now, now, when you say leafy greens, explain that, because I'm sure there are people saying, oh, does she do kale? Does she do broccoli? Which leafy greens are you, sure. are you talking so, about for now? Sure, so basically the flat leaf stuff, so spinach, kale, Swiss chard, baby lettuces. But we don't do micro-micro, right? We do like what we call the crown cut, so mm-hmm. a four- or five-inch leaf. 
So even though you're in Boston, no Boston bib? <laughs> <laughs> so Boston bib, weirdly enough, I was saying earlier, I, I went mm-hmm. into a, a sort of nerd tangent there sure. for a moment. So how plants grow in our system and express themselves in our system does not look what they look like in the field. So our iceberg lettuce, for example, is never hard and white and crunchy. Mm-hmm. It's dark green and frilly. So a Boston bib right. that is field grown or even greenhouse grown actually doesn't look like a Boston bib in our system. So we can get cultivars that look like a Boston bib that taste way better, but are not a Boston bib seed. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm old enough to remember the 1960s. I was a little kid, but you know, probably the best looking apples in the world were then, but they all had DDT on it. So, you know, just just the way it looks doesn't necessarily mean you're you're eating the healthiest food in the world. Well, look at the tomato, yeah, right? I exactly. mean, oh, what a disappointment! Yeah. I just can't do it. No. You know, and one of my great dreams is to produce the tasty tomato. Mm. locally grown, fully, you know, sun-ripened taste, lots of sugars developed, and, you know, you roast it and you get that wonderful caramelization. But today, tomato farmers are paid to pick green, they gas them to look red, all of the genetic modification has basically selected for a tomato that will survive transportation. And what about fruits in general? Yeah, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Are you thinking? I thought I I read somewhere maybe you're thinking about strawberries or something. Yeah, so we'll do, we'll we'll start strawberries Q1 of next year. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you already, when you you add it all together, it's like a $50 billion market when you start adding fruit and produce. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't blame you getting into that. So how do you like being a CEO? Because this, this was not exactly where you were <laughs> heading. And not, I'm, not, I'm not just talking about the pastry chef and, and, and the angel investor, but, but being a CEO in general. How's well, that going? I've, been at, I've done it before. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly something that I have enjoyed. I really thought I was going to be in this job for about three months and, you know, bring in a new management team. And then... We went from slightly crisis mode to then really super successful mode, and mm-hmm. then, you know, couldn't get off the ride. Right, <laughs> right. You wear a lot of hats. I mean, because you were an early investor, and, but now you're dealing with the daily ups and downs. So how, how are you elevating employees? You were talking about that earlier a little bit. So we are a great valuer of people's ideas. So our director of business analytics is a guy who is an autodidact. You know, he's an extraordinary polymath, an incredibly talented young man. But he started with us as farm labor. And he was tinkering with our farm management system. And he came up and he goes, you know, this stuff that we've been buying for greenhouses it doesn't really work that well because we have so much more precision in what we do. He said, do you mind if I just take a cut at the software? Okay. Sure. (laughs) He did. And we have a phenomenal product now. And we discovered last year that actually our product is so precise that it is many generations ahead of what greenhouses today use and cannabis operators use. Mm -hmm. Interesting you mentioned cannabis. Is that something that is big in the vertical farming world? Absolutely. It's where vertical farming really took off, right? So cannabis is a tough crop, if only now because there is the legal issue. There are many, many suppliers of it. And I think in the states where it is legal, there are big people in this. There are yeah. big, well-capitalized, and highly it's professional. Only too. It's a pretty much, exactly. You know, the unbanked nature yeah. of the industry. 
So we license our technology to the cannabis industry. We are not growers. Right. Okay. So let's talk about the growing water crisis. I heard a conversation earlier at the event here, and, and the good news is that vertical farming, as we talked about, uses less water, which is just incredible. And you've talked about how delicious the water is as well. But what about the water crisis just in general? This is obviously a big step. It's terrible. Yeah. I mean, water is our most scarce resource. You know, in places in sub-Saharan Africa, there are farmers who basically four hours a day, they trek two hours one way and two hours back with giant petrol jugs on their heads trying to irrigate their crops. You know, the subsistence farming world lives with enormous crop volatility, and it's really due to water volatility. Look at Australia. Right. I mean, Australia is a dust bowl right now. Mm -hmm. That's true. Have you looked at Australia as, as a possible? We have a heads of terms signed in solution. Australia. Good. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I would think that after Dubai would, would be a, a logical step. So any tips for folks that want to get into this field? You know, there, there's so many college graduates that are really into sustainability and really into looking at different things. So, you know, UARC has been a little bit less traditional, and that's actually something I tell my kids all the time because mine is also a less traditional one. So what lessons have you learned that you wish you could go back and, and maybe tell your younger self about that maybe you've learned in the last few years? I think mentoring is unbelievably powerful and important. So every step of my career has been about somebody who took me under their wing and gave me insight. And in many ways, the technology choices we've made in this company are a function of our largest investor who, you know, very early on, every venture capitalist said to us, you can't grow in boxes. Stop the growing in boxes, go open warehouse format, that's the only way you're gonna scale. And he said, actually, let's grow in enough boxes that we can say, these are the pros, these are the cons. And we did, and we followed his judgment. That is what allowed us to crush down cost because we had a mm -hmm. widget that we could right. get like for like. It's what has allowed us to be kosher because the boxes really control insects. Yes. It's allowed us to have higher yield because we really control the environment very, very tightly. And it has allowed us to have a test bed that's really interesting and pure from a scientific perspective for seed companies and for lighting companies. So all of our partners love the fact that we're modular because right. we have a controllable room where if we change the lighting solution or if we change the seed, they know that's the variable that's changed, not when you're in a 200,000 square foot warehouse. You know, my excitement with all this, it's funny, started, I guess it was Hanukkah last year when, when my son got my wife one of those aero gardens, so yeah. to speak, and it has an LED light. And all of a sudden, within three months, I mean, this thing is just like going crazy. It's mostly herbs. Yeah. And we've replaced it three or four times. And it's, they can just see what it is just for one little one in, in our kitchen. I can only imagine, you know, when you put it on the giant scale where, where that's going. Oh, it's like a jungle. It, yeah. Uh, you step into inside one of our grown right. Units and it's like, whoa. So, I mean, you know, in terms of career progression, mm -hmm. you know, this person who is our largest investor was really transformative. And, you know, he mentored us through that process. It was kind of his vision for why this was important because he really just liked the scientific purity of no, don't abandon that form factor quite yet. 
let's figure out what's good about it. Let's figure out what's not good about it. Right. And we can go from there. Mm-hmm. So what's your biggest concern about climate change in general? You know, I mean, the potential for scarcity for food on our planet, obviously, is one thing. But is there is there another area without getting into politics or anything that just sort of really, really concerns you, certainly as a parent? I think the biggest issue with climate change, and I was just discussing this with a friend and another mentor on Friday, is that as humans, we only respond to fight or flight response. And we like things with urgency, whereas climate change, we're being boiled. We're frogs that are being boiled, but we don't realize we're being boiled. And a 30-year horizon to catastrophe, or a 12-year horizon, or a 15-year horizon, is not something that we as humans can emotionally grasp. And I think that all of us who are in vertical farming today are standing up and saying, we're boiling. You know, this is, we are frogs in water that the temperature is slowly being raised up and people are starving today. There will be more people who starve. There will be more water scarcity. So I think we are creating a message around that fight-or-flight response, which I think we have to create in order for human beings to start reacting. Hmm. I asked this question of a guest a few weeks ago. I'm going to ask it of you, too, because I think it kind of fits. So let's say you were around 500 years ago. You know, let's go back to the Middle Ages, so to speak. What do you think you would do for, as a career? You know, if you, a, if you were in the, the museum <laughs> of previous lives, so to speak, from the movie Defending Your Life. But hmm. Well, as an Asian woman who's five foot ten, I probably would have been drafted into the Imperial Guard. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would have been given a career choice. I think oh. I would have been told what to do. But you'd be really good and you would have discovered things that they never knew about. So so I asked you about the chef, but before I let you go, we got to talk about the black belt. Now, was this a passing fancy? I mean, I, I remember when I was 12 years old, a kid used to want to get a dollar from me every day, and my brother made me take Taekwondo and Judo, oh, actually, yeah. Taekwondo and then mostly Judo, and that solved that problem. But, yeah. But, but what, what, what started that for you? So Taekwondo is the Korean national martial art, right? Mm-hmm. So as somebody South Korean whose parents were diplomats for the country, it was the only martial art I was ever going to do. But the sad truth of it was that I loved ballet and I was going to be a ballet dancer, except that I then hit like five foot seven at the age of eight. <laughs> okay. So that was the end of my career as a ballet dancer. <laughs> Well, listen, never say never. You, you are accomplishing so many different things. And I can't thank you enough for taking time today, for sharing the incredible things that are happening at Crop One. You've really disrupted salad, I guess is the best way to put it, <laughs> besides being a, czar, a czarina. A czar, what was it? A czar, a Zara? Zara of a, agriculture. A the Zara, Zara and a mensch of agriculture. <laughs> I'm going to throw that in. But more importantly, you're doing a lot of good and you're tackling at least three of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals of Zero Hunger, sustainable cities and communities, and very specifically responsible consumption and production. So bravo for that. I'm so honored to speak to someone who's transforming the world in such a positive way. It's so refreshing. And hopefully during these challenging days we are facing, we will link up to your website. Of course, we're going to tell people where they can taste your delicious leafy greens. Now, I know you're in Massachusetts. Are there other areas where people can buy the Fresh Box Farms? Or Not right now? now, but we okay. will be supplying into the greater New York area. Oh, great. Imminently. Great. Right. I don't see you like sending it via Amazon. I mean, I think no. you're, you're, no, it no. sort of takes away the 
the carbon footprint <laughs> and everything else. But I look forward to getting in the New York area. And actually, somehow, I think you'll be growing food on another planet before you're done. So wouldn't surprise me if you're part of some mission to Mars in a few years to figure things out. It was kind of like what Matt Damon was doing on Mars. or he was That's you know, right. Apparently, right? the science of that is accurate. Yeah. The science from that film, The Martian. That's yeah. fantastic. Oh, wow. Well, again, thank you again. And thank everyone today for listening to Financially Speaking, especially a little bit one of the noisier shows we've done here. But this was such an important interview. I wanted to get this done today. And I appreciate everyone that's following the show on Spotify. Coming soon, we take a big bite out of Apple Podcasts. Been waiting for that. It's coming. Stay tuned for that big news. And thanks to everyone at Resonate Recording for post-production. You're going to really get some work today, Janelle. <laughs> um, and remember, when it comes for saving for your hydroponic futures, pay yourself first. Have a great week. Bye.